The Guardian. You're listening to a Guardian live event. The Guardian has always been a community of readers, journalists, and contributors, and now our live events are bringing that community even closer. The Guardian events are the Guardian at its best, which is a two-way conversation involving the reader and having a real, genuine, thriving debate. Could be anything from food and culture, arts to politics to foreign affairs. Guardian members can attend from the very serious to the quite frivolous. Support the Guardian's independent journalism and join the debates on the big issues of our time. To see what events are coming up and to check out the benefits of membership, go to members.theguardian.com. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Live podcast. This Guardian Live event, An Evening with Marlon James, was recorded at the Guardian offices, London, in November 2015. He's the host, Guardian Books editor, Claire Armistead. You're an activist, aren't you? I mean, I've been reading through some of your posts on your blog back in the day and on Facebook. Um, Um, Yeah, I'm probably more just kind of shut up (laughs) than than anything else. Um, that's funny because I usually reject the term activist. It's just that, you know, I speak a lot about what's going on, what's going on in the world, in my world. Um, I talk a lot about race, um, a lot about gender, a lot about um, feminist issues, racism issues, politics. Um, I just had a, my, I think I just dropped off a rant about Donald Trump a few minutes ago. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, what else does he have to need to be called a Nazi? He's... He's not attacked everybody. He's, he's, he's just attacked the disabled. It's like, what is he, what, what next? Eugenics, we should reconsider? It's like, it's, yeah. he's a terrible man. That's not exactly what I want to say. I want to say he's a, he's a misbegotten shit stain on the butt crack of the planet. But, You're just taking the temperature. But I'm keeping it calm because this, this, this is a decent environment. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, are you, are you, I mean, some of you might, I don't know whether any of you follow the Guardian Books podcast, which, I, my name's Claire Armistead, I do the Guardian Books podcast. We had Marlon on it before you'd actually won the before, prize. Before, yeah. Before an awful lot of stuff that came up over the prize <laughs> had come up. So there was this sort of, there were all these sort of, these sort of hidden things mm-hmm. lingering about it. But we'll yeah. get on to some of those issues a bit later. Mm-hmm. Would you like to start with doing a reading just to set, establish some sure. sort of a voice? So I'm going to read, since this is, for the most part, a book about men and women who are hovering, revol- rev- um, circling, and, and, and watching Bob Marley, I got to read from one of the characters who is literally watching Bob Marley. She is Nina Burgess, and she's, um, she's standing outside his house across the street, hoping he will come out, because she's desperate to get money to pay for an illegal visa. Um, she was denied her visa application because she has no ties. They think she's a flight risk, which she is. And so, sorry, the only way she can think of make, getting this money is through him because they slept together once and she's convinced Midnight Ravers that song is about her. <laughs> it's about somebody, but it's not her. Anyway, 17 buses, 10 minibuses, including one calling itself Revlon Flex that already passed twice. 21 taxis, 376 cars, I think. And not once did the man step out of his house. Not even to get some air, not to make sure the guards are doing their job, not even to tell the son, later my bedroom, I have serious work to do. The man on the lime green scooter came back in the evening and they sent him away again. 
but not before he got off and spoke to the man at the gate for two minutes and 17 seconds. I timed him. Danny's watch still works, but it wasn't until lunch one time at the Terra Nova when I ran into a former schoolmate, breast drooped down like a tired goat, but still a stuck-up bitch, that I found out Timex is the same watch that my daddy gave Hortense last week for 15 years of service to the household. This bitch was calling me cheap. I wanted to, wanted to tell her how happy she must be as a married woman, now that she no longer has to bother with looking attractive. But I smiled and said, I hope your little boy can swim, because I just saw him running for the pool. I wish they would invent phones that you can take with you, or I would have called Kimmy and asked if she's gone to see her poor mother and father yet, and what are we going to do about leaving this country before something worse happens? Knowing Kimmy, she probably finally showed up in her Ganja University t-shirt and jeans, the one cut off halfway down the backside, calling mommy her sistrin and saying that this is all the plan of the Babylon shitstim, and it's not the robber they should be mad at, but the shitstim that robbed them first. That's what they say at the 12 tribes meeting place in that rough and tumble neighborhood called West King's House near the Queen's representative. I really need to get better at this sarcasm business. I might be a snob, but at least I'm not a hypocrite. Still coasting around because I have nothing to do now that my life's dream to fuck Che Guevara blew up in my face. Nor am I hanging out with rich people in West King's House who now don't wash their hair and calling themselves Ayman to upset their parents when everybody knows in two years they're going right back to their father's shipping company to take it over and marry whichever Syrian bitch just won Miss Jamaica. Car 367, 68, 69, I need to go home. But I'm outside here waiting on him. You ever feel like home is the one place you can't go back to? It's like you promised yourself when you got out of bed and combed your hair that this evening, when I get back, I'll be a different woman in a new place. And now you can't go back, because the house expects something from you. A bus stops, and I fan it off. The bass creeps up on me from across the road. It sounds like he's been playing the same song all day. It sounds like another song about me, but there's probably two dozen women in Jamaica right now and another 2,000 in the world who think the same thing anytime a song of his come on the radio. But Midnight Ravers is about me. One day I'm going to tell Kimmy, and she'll know, won't she, that just because she's the prettiest doesn't mean she get all of them. A white police car with blue stripes going all around it parked itself by the gate. I didn't even see it coming. Jamaican police tend to use their siren all the time just to tell people to clear the street so they can reach Kentucky Fried Chicken quicker. <laughs> I wonder if the guard over the gate is telling the police right at this minute that I've been at the bus stop all day watching the house. But instead, somebody says something, and the fat policeman, there's always one, laughs, and it echoes all the way over to this side. He leaves to get back in his car, but somebody from inside shouts at him, I know it's you, it has to be you. A car is coming up by my side of the road, 90 feet. I can beat it before it slams into me, and I know it's you. I just know it. The car, 40 feet. Run, run right now. Don't blow your damn horn at me, son of a bitch. Death like your damn mother. I'm in the median with too many cars driving down the other side of the road, and me in the middle, maroon like Ben Gunn, and I just want you to see me. It's you. It must be you. Remember me? 
Midnight Rivers is about me, even though it was after midnight, and you might not know what I look like in a day, and I just want a favor. I just need a little help. They robbed my father and raped my mother. No, they didn't rape her. No, I don't know. But the story sounds more urgent when an old woman's pum-pum getting messed with. And I know it's you, and the policeman is waiting. Good, good, wonderful, good. He's coming outside. It's not you. Another guard runs outside to tell him something, and the fucking fat policeman laughs again and deposits himself in the car. I'm stuck in the median, traffic blurring past me, and lifting up my skirt. Thank you. Thank you. So, yes. I, I'm very interested that you chose to open with a reading from Nina, who is, mm-hmm. the, is only, there are only three female voices out of 15 voices. That's mm-hmm. Nina, her sister, Kimmy, who's mentioned, and right. Dorcas, who's a caregiver in, mm-hmm. in the States. Yeah. Um, Tell us, I mean, people have gone on about how this is a macho novel, it's about male <laughs> violence. I think, I don't know, at one point I, I think I did set out to write a man novel because I wrote a woman's novel before. And, and it's funny, one of the big complaints about my previous novels, it was unfair to the male voice because there were only women in it. It's like, wow, that's privileged. So <laughs> but this one, I think because I was, um, I was talking about killers and the killers of killers, that it, it did end up being for the hu- a huge part of a story about men, but I also wanted to talk about people who have the people who have to survive this and who have to live with this and who have to move on and who get saddled with that that um, burden because men rarely get that one to do, and and as sort of how Nina came about. But Nina was somebody even I underestimated because I just thought she's just some woman who wants some money from 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 Bob Marley, and. Getting to writing her and and getting to know her and getting into her mind, I realized that um, not just that she was a survivor, but she in in many ways typify a Jamaica that rarely gets written. Um, There's tons. You want you want you want stuff on Jamaican ghetto. There are tons you can find on that. You want stuff on aging plantations. You can find stuff on that. You want stuff on crime. You can find stuff. What you don't hear about is the middle class, and the the. The complexities of being middle class, especially for somebody like Nina, who's as educated and well-spoken and, and, has, and moves sometimes in those circles, but isn't rich. Um, so she has all this, you know, what, what the point of this sort of education, but she can barely get a job. And that's a whole other kind of, I think, um, a kind of story that we don't see all the time. Even... Um, I'm trying to remember what book came out recently. It was basically a plantation and ghetto. As if I felt, in a lot of ways, I felt as if my own life was being erased. In a lot of ways, Nina is reflects my upbringing. I grew up middle class, reasonably stable, but still not much opportunities. Lots and lots and lots of boredom, and 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 I definitely wanted that in there. Um, and I also wanted to talk a lot about how we in Jamaica. Um, what we do with women, how we treat women, and how women have to live and, and survive, and not just the usual, I am poor but proud in the ghetto, but what happens if you actually can drive a car and you had a job and you still don't have opportunities? How, 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 do, we, how, we, how do we talk about that? Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned that you're middle class. Your mother mm-hmm. was a cop, is that right? She was a detective. She was a detective. Oh. Now, and I, quite, I like the fact that in that extract you had a, you have a, 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 a sort of dig at yeah. Jamaican police. Oh, God. Yeah. But you know, they want to get to the Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah. <laughs> How would your mom have taken that? 
My mom would have said yes, because uh, as, a, as a, a female cop, she, the stuff that everybody in the street deal with once in a while, she dealt with every day. Um, it's, it's, I think to an extent, they, I think you know, women, female police women were, were looked upon as a kind of decoration. And, uh, and my mom was the first woman to meet detective. And, and, and she, was, she was kind of a badass. She, really, she is still. I, I, people see her and she, she holds a bag like this. And everybody thinks, oh, she's so sweet. I'm like, she will kill you. <laughs> so I don't, don't believe it. <laughs> um, but, you know, the thing is, the Jamaican police force is a lot like even, say, the Filipino police force, where they come out of a previous era when their, their job was primarily to repress and suppress the, pop, the native population. Uh, that's, that's the origins of them. Um, uh, you know, they didn't come out very well. When, when um, all the moves towards self-determination in Jamaica, whether it was 1865 or 1938, before independence, they were suppressed by the police, which is not to say... To, to throw this whole blanket, police are corrupt thing. I mean, my mom and my mom's friends are all cops. But there, there is that terrible legacy and that terrible history. And it keeps showing up every now and then, especially in the 70s. But it's still there. It's still, you know, we're dealing with corruption. We're dealing with violence. We're dealing with a whole, whole bunch of things that we should not be dealing with in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um- you were six when the, the, this event happened. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about the, the central event, which doesn't happen at the beginning of the novel. It's quite right. dropped quite far into it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But it is the fulcrum around which the whole novel revolves, which is the attempted assassination of Bob Marley mm-hmm. in 1976. Yeah. Yeah, I was six. So, um, and I'd, I pretty much had the world of a six-year-old, which was, you know, kind of a world of wonder. Um, you know, a crisis for me is, is, is really we're not going to get peanut butter on a sandwich today. <laughs> um, my horror was being given sardines, which is still a disgusting thing. <laughs> it's quite disgusting. <laughs> but as the, the, you know, I, I mean, I guess to the credit of my parents, we're very, very, instru- they were very adamant that we had childhoods. That said, I think being a kid, there are things I there are things I, I I process in a kid's way. When Marty got shot, the the overall mood, which I can see in hindsight, was one of of it was a, a kind of terror because Marty was up to that point untouchable. Um, it was just an it was just a sort of a, a accepted rule: nobody touches a tough gang, and that extended to his house. So his house was the one sanctuary in Kingston, and I've said this other places, that um, men who had been trying to kill each other only a day before would be playing dominoes there. And then the prime minister would always show up. I don't know if he inhaled or not. <laughs> but he would all, the prime minister would show up. If there's a major rock star in the country, he would be there. So you're talking about, uh, you know, um, men with with with... with you know, five or ten to eleven accusations of murder all overturned around the prime minister of the country, the biggest reggae singer on the planet, usually a Rolling Stone, um, usually Keith looking for weed. Uh, and it's just it's so it was it and and, and, and there is so much there's so much um weed, there is so much positive vibes, there's so much music, there's free love, there's free sex, there is uh, it's, but, uh, but it was still this weirdly kind of hedonistic yet sacred ground. 
So when they attacked, it was as much an attack on the place as, and, and, and on the idea of the place as it was on Marley. None of this I would know in 1976. But I would know when my mother is scared. Because I think at six-year-old, your parents are still Superman and Wonder Woman. I think at that point, I, I, I still remember the first time my mother cried. It, it disturbed me so profoundly because I didn't think parents cried. And I didn't think parents showed fear. And the idea that if they could shoot Marley, they could shoot anybody. The, the idea that nobody was safe. The idea that you have a sense that your parent thinks they can't protect you. You can pick up that at six. You don't understand it, but you can pick it up. And I think that, that always haunts me, especially whenever we go through peers in Jamaica where I hear that in her voice again. Uh, if, if, if crime is out of control, if organized crime has been replaced by disorganized crime, I hear that voice again. And I think that's one of the things that drove me to wanting to go back to that period. I want to know what unnerved everybody and what made everybody so scared. Why is that event so pivotal? It was a year that was riddled with violence. And that seems like it was the, the exclamation point on it. And I wanted to know why. Is it because it was an election year? It was an election year. And it's, it's, it's even when Marley, when Marley announced the concert, the PNP, who at the time promised them it was not a political event, and Marley wouldn't have done it if it was political, right after it was announced, it's like, oh, by the way, we have an election coming the following week or something like that. And it, he just felt kind of, certainly it wouldn't have been the first time a politician used Marley. And, and I think that really grated him the wrong way, that it ended up being... Because one of the things that people sometimes mistakenly thought about Marley is that Marley was a PNP guy. And he really wasn't. He did a, a, a concert, I think, for him early, early in his career, but everybody did it. That's, how else are you going to get any national recognition? Um, but yeah, it's, it's the, 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 the politics of the time. And, then, and, and this was also because earlier in the year, Mane declared that he's pu pushing democratic socialism, we almost instantaneously entered the Cold War. Um, and that became fascinating to me as well. I didn't know any of this when I was writing the book. When I so there were quite a few Cubans this. knocking around, for example. All these Cubans, right? But there were two classes of Cuban knocking around. There were the Cubans from Cuba and the Cubans from Miami. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's um, the, the, my character, Dr. Love, who's actually not Cuban, but he says he is, there was a, you know, the, the, the right-wing Cubans trying to save Jamaica from terrible communism. Um, it was just, even, even for people who were left-wing, nobody could understand why in 1976 Jamaican news was being read in Spanish. Like, nobody spoke Spanish. It's like, why? Why, why was there a <laughs> So the right-wing, you know, got all Donald Trump on it. I was like... It's the beginning of the cultural indoctrination. It's, it, was it was such a crazy decade. But the thing is also, and this, this affects me in, a more, in, a more, in, a, in an artistic way, is that it was also a huge explosion of culture. Reggae, of course. Reggae became an international phenomenon. And, but it also inspired a new generation of writers to, for example, take, take, um, take control of their own language that before, before reggae showed up, a lot of people would use patois, would use Jamaican dialect, but to laugh at it, to poke fun of it. Sometimes it would be sly, like Louise Bennett. But more often than not, it was a kind of a step and fetch it. 
kind of, let's laugh at this sort of broken English as if it needs to be fixed. And the idea that you could use patois, the voice of your own mouth, and talk about complicated things which you have no solution for was really, really pretty radical. And it was a huge impact on writers like me and, um, and even writers outside of Jamaica like Juno Diaz and Edwidge Danticat. That, that was a huge influence. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what the question was now. <laughs> <laughs> you said something about um, really interesting about organised crime being replaced by unorganised crime mm-hmm. and that was the big fear. Mm-hmm. But there is a, this is organised crime you're talking about in a way, isn't it? In it is. It's very organised. It's like sort of mafias, basically. It is, very ma- it is mafia. And one of the things that... Um, one of the ways when ways we, where, ways the, um, the political jet gangs and the dons made money was the politicians would give them money, or if your if your party's in power, they get all the jobs. The other way they would make money, and I'm sure they still are making money, is extortion. Um, not extortion. Um, God, yeah, it is extortion. I'm trying to remember what's the t- term for. You pay me two dollars every week, or I'll break your hands. A protection racket, sort of. Yeah, it was yeah. a protection racket. Mm. And, uh, and which is a way in which they, they make money. And this is before drugs entered it. And then, then everything exploded. Um, then it made money from, from crack cocaine trafficking. And then they made it from enforcing the delivery of, of drugs in the States. Um, but yeah, there was always something. But they, they, they started out being the henchmen of politicians. And uh, Marley... Being a, being a unifier, Marley was a huge, huge danger. Because that's the last thing you wanted. The, neither side wanted that. It's interesting that in, 19, in 1979, when both sides form, came together anyway and f- started a peace treaty, and it, it, it was the, the, the people who never got involved were the parties. The political parties had nothing to do with it and they refused to get involved. And then within a year, every, within two years, everybody involved in the treaty was dead. So, mm-hmm. so you, you have um, a, a, a sort of out front history of, of Jamaica, mm-hmm. but you also have underneath that, you have a history of drugs yeah. going through from the 70s th- through mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we see sort of crack, crack coming in, which. Yeah, crack. Uh, I mean, crack came in, because, crack came in larger because the, the, that Bahamas just couldn't handle it. For one, they kept, you know, sniffing their own supply, and and the Colombians got tired of that. So, and this is a, <laughs> a this is a progression during the novel. Isn't it is it? a progression, but, yeah. Uh, that, that it's one of the reasons why Josie Wales is contacted is that is that um, Medellin contacts him. So Josie Wales being the being the enforcer for the Copenhagen. Yeah. Well, the, the deputy enforcer when we meet him, deputy with yeah. ambitions of becoming head enforcer. And uh, the one, the, 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 there are many theories that about the Marley assassination, and I pretty much explore all of them. I'm not saying which is which one is the true one necessarily. But one of the things that Josie does, why the reason why he did the attack is to impress Colombia, uh, because they they saw they already saw it. They were watching for for a while. They needed a, a Caribbean a Caribbean point between between um, Colombia and Miami. Cuba wasn't going to work out, although Cuba was was it for a while, and and the, the Bahamians kept kept using their own supply, um, so the Jamaicans were perfect, and and he 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 anticipated that in the book. 
And then um, by the end, it, you've got a balance between Medellin and, mm -hmm. and the Jamaicans, who seem to control New York pretty he much. He seems to control New York. I mean, the, 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 the true story, and I think I, I, I appropriated in the book, is that the, the Jamaican posse em, em, um, impressed the Cali cartel so much, they was like, okay, we're going to give you London. I was like, I could have just bequeathed an empire. It's like, you can handle London. That's how, that's how much they impressed the, um, the Colombians. Uh, but Joseph Wales in the book anticipates that years before and knew that, that um, they had come calling. Just as though the CIA comes calling. Everybody comes calling to Joseph Wales. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the third history that's, that, that runs through it is mm -hmm. history of sexuality. Mm -hmm. And um, sort of really changing and going right the way through to New York, to the AIDS era. Mm -hmm. It starts, as you say, hedonistic. It's almost sort of, it's Edenic in a way, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's innocent. Yeah. You don't have that, yeah. dan those dangerous consequences. It is. One of, the running, one of the running jokes in the book that some people pick up is every now and then, more, more, more comes on the radio. That more, more, more. How do you like it? How do you like it? <laughs> more, more, more was done by a porn star. <laughs> so, and she came to Jamaica and, and, and they wouldn't let her leave within the US I can't remember what she had to do I think she just bought some drugs or something um, but yeah it's the, 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 but, the, but the, the, the hedonism was very much tied to class it was are you rich enough to be hedonistic even the hotel hedonism which had this ridiculous slogan be wicked for a week <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> that part of this because even then, Jamaica as a playground for the rich and decadent was still going on until everybody got scared at the end of 1976, and I wanted to capture that. But also the the um, also homosexuality, the ways in which um, one of the characters Weeper alludes to it, you know, said things like "drug was the only way I could have fun in prison." Like we know what, we know what you mean, dude. <laughs> Uh, and and the, the the journey of him being this sort of suppressed suppressed That's weeper. Uh, yeah. weeper yeah yeah you know, you know, is is I, I remember it, this is weeper is not the only um, gay gunman in the book um, one of the characters is based on a Jamaican who was arrested who was convicted of murder because his DNA was found in his victim's mouth and he had a press conference not to prove he was innocent but to prove he was straight. <laughs> so the press conference was to tell us he has 20 women and 40 kids. It wasn't to tell us I'm innocent of them. No, I killed him. But I want you to know I'm straight. That, <laughs> and the, the hypocrisy of that. There's a very, very long and very explicit gay sex scene in the book. Okay, maybe there's more than one. But, and it was very important. And I, and I talk about this because we, we, one of the long-running arguments I have with other writers is how much sex and how much violence. I'm sure we're going to come to that yeah, at some point. Yeah, we will point. come to that. So I'm not going to jump to that, but let's talk to the sex part. Um, and the reason why that needed to be an explicit scene is that Weeper is coming into his own as a gay man through actual, the actual physical expression of gayness. The, 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 the part where he, you know, he's in bed with a guy and all he can think of is that Air Jamaica is going to fly by the window. <laughs> or or, or yeah. that Josie Wells is somehow going to float up. Right. And a, a plane can't fly by a window like that. And the, the Jamaicans will be all on one side and say, see the Batman there. And coming to the point where he just sort of accepts it. And I thought that, that, was, a scene, that was how the scene had to be. 
And you said something else really interesting mm -hmm. about the character who he has that scene with, who is a very, very minor character. Just mm -hmm. in a way, he's, it seems in the novel as if he's just created to enable that scene to happen. Mm -hmm. But he was where the novel started. John he, John. Yeah, he was where the novel started. The, the, the first page I wrote in this novel is now on page 458, which would give you an idea of that I don't write linear. Um, but yeah, because when, when, I'm coming from the mic. When John, John John, when I came up with John John, it was a totally different novel. It was one supposed to be my shortest novel. It was, I was reading a lot of crime fiction at the time because I'm a huge fan of crime fiction, and I still am. Um, and I, was, I really wanted to write about this, this um, gunman who is on a mission to kill a Jamaican drug lord. Sorry, and but was having serious boyfriend problems. Which was just getting in the so way. So it would be a gay crime novel. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, boyfriend problems, they just always get in the way, don't they? They just... <laughs> just you want to kill somebody, but boyfriend trouble. It's just, <laughs> and, and I really like the idea of writing this person since is, is he's in love and the guy's in like. You hear the hmms? Yeah. <laughs> they get it. They really get it. <laughs> yeah. I'm preaching. I know I'm preaching. Uh, so it was, and, and but the thing is, I kept running in, running to a dead end. And the reason I ran into a dead end is because I thought I was going to write this novel the way this novel the way I wrote my previous novel, which is I just find that magic voice that can carry me for four hundred pages, and that's it. And every time I ran into a dead end with a character, I figure, oh, it's not that person's novel. I'm going to write this thing, and and so on. And so the the the, the that Chicago hitman novel fizzled. And it wasn't until I've written a lot of pages and didn't know what to do with them and still waiting for this great voice, because I had one for the previous book, that a friend of mine said, well, why do you think it's one person's story? Um, go back and read As I Lay Dying. And that was a big sort of eureka moment. That's the Faulkner. The Faulkner, what you Faulkner is As I Lay Dying with all, um, all, the, women, all the, the, the members of this woman's family narrating the story as they build her coffin. She's still alive and watching her coffin being built. And just how, and it's different characters revolving around that incident telling the story. And that was a big influence. And um, the second thing that was a big influence was this essay that Gaetalese wrote in Sinatra. Passion is reissuing it, by the way, in this deluxe volume. They should have asked me to do the intro, but they didn't. <laughs> um, called Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. And Talese flew down, I think it was to Miami, to interview Sinatra and couldn't get him. Sinatra kept saying, they kept saying, Mr. Sinatra has a cold. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't talk to them. And he hit upon, he almost accidentally invented new journalism by saying, I'll just interview everybody around. So he talked to everybody. He talked to, he talked to the, the, the um, he talked to, to the, the person who kept Frank Sinatra's toupees. Yeah, that here wasn't real people. You know, he talked to everybody from the, the, the toupee brusher to the gardener to the person who arranged the song list to people who don't even know him and create this huge portrait of him out of the voices of everybody else. And that is how, when I, that sort of inspired how I treated Marley in the book, that I wasn't that interested in him so much as what was going on around him. And, and then in a weird way, I think it creates this sort of portrait of him and of the time. Mm. Yeah. Now, before we leave John John, should we read a bit of him? Sure. To honour him as the beginning of this novel <laughs> and the centre of it in some respect. So, 
This is John John's sort of coming of age. Um, and this is, you know, John John is coming of age. He's, he's in a scene. He's in, he's in Brooklyn waiting to shoot his Jamaican dude. And he's remembering the past. So let me go from, let's see, what we have, so we don't spend too long. Yeah, let's do this. So, and now I'm losing my shit in Flatbush, acting all stupid over this fucking faggot who got the jump on me. This boy colder than fucking midnight for taking up with a guy who kills people because sooner or later he's going to kill that one, the one where it all started, the one who made him this fucking way. Fuck this. I'm going to fire a shot and blow a bullet hole in the world. I'm the jocks and the kids who caught me looking at another kid in the shower. And whoever in the gym yanked my fucking toilet and exposed my fucking boner. If I keep this up, I'm not going to make it. There's nothing to do but wait for Griselda to call again. Or maybe one of the Hawaiian shirts would show up. Since she must have sent one to make sure I carried it out, then clean up. Maybe the pink Hawaiian shirt guy who knew too much about clubs. And maybe he would let me, let me go if I sucked him off. I mean, even a bad blowjob makes a man close his eyes hoping it will get better. I only needed a second to grab the gun and blow clear, blow clear through his head from the chin and watch blood hit the roof. Sometimes I, was back, I wish I was back in Chai Town breaking into cars. Ten feet away, a phone booth. Hello? Rocky, where the hell were you? You gonna answer me, goddammit? Oh, John John. I called you more than once. I really need to sleep. I guess you had a fucking busy day. No, not really. Was figuring out what birthday card to send to dad. I do every year. Why did he call me John John? What? What do you mean? I'm always pretty clear about what I mean. Why are you calling? Well, because, because I just watched one depressing episode of MASH. An even more depressing episode of One Day at a Time. And it was either Lou Grant or Bed. Although this episode had to deal with some spazzy suicide chick, but it was only part one, one day at a time, I mean. What do you want? What What do I want? I don't want anything. I really need to get some sleep. Then fucking sleep then. Huh. You got a problem, don't you? I don't have a problem. It just takes a fucking cake, huh? Somebody who does nothing all day can be so tired. And here I thought my stepmother was dead. Turns out she's right here on the phone talking to me. Fuck your stepmother. You miss me, don't you? Don't make me fucking laugh. What a stupid question. Yes, yeah, stupid. Also makes you sound like a homo if you say yes. You're the homo. And you're clearly 12 years old. Either way, I don't care. You don't care if I'm a faggot? No, I don't care about having this conversation. Anything else? Why are you so fucking... You know what? No, no. Well, good night. Good night. Wait, I mean, wait. What? Um, I, um... You made it with anybody? What's it to you? Fucking hell, Rock. What the fuck? No. The answer is no. I don't see why it matters. We're not together or anything. And you do whatever you like. You made it with anybody? No. Don't see why not. You're in NYC. Faggots, fogies, and foreigners, and you're still pretty young. Either way, I'm going to bed. It's not your bed. Good night. Wait. What? No, Jesus. Would you like some phone sex? You want me to say, fuck me, daddy, until you beat yourself off? Fuck me. Oh, fuck me with your big fucking cock, daddy. Ooh, come in my face. Treat me like a bitch. Jesus Christ, can you say something nice? I'm sorry. I, whoa, that was a big yawn. Where were we? Good night. See you late. I felt good hanging up on the bitch. Focus. I'm across the street waiting to take this Jamaican out. Except I haven't figured out how yet. 
I don't even know if this should be a one-man job. In fact, it shouldn't. So when so many things are up for grabs, instead, all I got is nerves. This isn't supposed to be my fucking hit anyway. I'm just trying to keep myself alive for a few days. Jesus Christ, what kind of a hitman's got daddy issues? Ten years ago at a corner 7-Eleven in Chicago, the day before, I walked 20 blocks before I found one, sweating in my father's fat slob leather jacket. The day before, I was scoping out the place. An old man was at the counter listening to the radio. This time was a girl in a maroon t-shirt that said, Virginia is for lovers, grooving to love train on the radio. She didn't bother to look up. At the far end of the Magrack, Penthouse, we, Penthouse Forum, Penthouse Letters, Hustler, was fine since they had dicks, even though I don't know that I wanted dick, but behind that, honcho, mandate, inches, black inches, straight to hell. But Blue Boy wasn't sealed, and nobody came inside. For a while I wondered, who the fuck was breeding like Darth Vader, until I realized it was me. Twenty blocks away, nobody would find out, right? This guy was telling her that Iran is finally getting out of hand, and President Boba better do something. On the cover, the boy's cowboy hat <clears throat> put everything in a shadow, but those wet lips kind of kissing a cigarette. Blue Boy, March 1979, the bad boys who love it anytime. Sick was what Pop called me. One day when the man went through my shit looking for cash so that he could buy cigs and soda and chips to balloon his fat ass even bigger. I wish I could have been there when he found supernova cocks, super hung cocks, cock tees, cock hungry, and super surge cocks. Did he throw up after that one? Did he shake his head and say, I knew something was fishy about that boy? Did he sit down and read a few? So I finally, finally come home, not ready to take any crap from nobody, least of all that loser, only to see the man hobbling out of the living room, holding the mag with the pink cover, supernova cocks, shouting, you fucking dirty little faggot, you fucking dirty little faggot, there's a special part of hell for people like you. Can't believe a fucking son of mine, a son from normal blood is out there fucking the fudge out of some fucker's ass. This must be from your mother's side of the family. That's what you do, fag? Fuck ass all day long? Got it wrong, Pop. Usually it's my ass they're fucking all night long. What did you say? Don't you know, Pop? I'm the hottest piece of ass on the whole east side. They line up around the block to see me, especially them black dudes. This one time, this black dude did me so raw, I couldn't even... I oughta, you oughta what, man? Pop stepped to me, but I wasn't 10 years old. Sure, he was bigger and fatter, but I've been waiting on this for years. I oughta, you oughta go back to your fucking room and watch All in the Family and stay out of my business, Pop. You want two bucks for some Fritos? I walk right past him to my bedroom, but Pop grabbed me by the arm and pulled me back. I oughta kill you for the disgrace you bring to this family. Take your fucking hand off me. You're gonna burn. Take your fucking hand off me. I oughta... I pulled the Beretta out of the holster. Fuck yeah, I was carrying a gun by then. Just in case one of those cars still had a driver in it. Pop jumped back, holding two hands stiff, like some bank clerk in a stick-up. Y'all the what, you son of a bitch? Do I look like I'm scared of you? You, you, I'm only, I'm one of those men you pretend to know. Talking all your shit all the time. I'm going to my room and fucking sleep. Don't come in my room again, you hear me? I want you out of this house. You're nothing but a two-bit hood. And you're a loser who couldn't raise nothing but a faggot. Take that shit to your next bridge game with Mr. Costa. By the way, I suck him off every time he comes upstairs looking for the John. You shut your fucking mouth, gag like a fish the way his cock's so big. I want you out of my house. Oh, I'm gone, old man. I'm fucking gone. You want some cash? 
I don't want none of your faggot money. Your choice. Maybe I'll take it and buy my own faggot Jim Bean then. You're a fucking demon. And you're a fucking loser. I went to my room and the man mumbled something. What did you say? Leave me alone. What did you say? You think you're so smart, don't you? I might be a fucking loser, but you're the one person that everybody will think is lower scum than even me. Lisa, she had such a rough time for you. Nearly killed her when you were born. Jesus Christ, I don't fucking need this shit. I don't. I really don't. <laughs> so it's, it's very strong stuff, but something I've <laughs> only just noticed about yes. it. One of the things about this novel is you think when you, you first read it, it cascades over you. It's just, mm-hmm. And then you begin to see the, the, the structure in it. So that scene is a mirror of the scene with Nina early on when her mm. dad chucks her out and beats her up because, yeah. because she's, she's, she, he thinks she's hanging out after, the, after, yeah, after Marley, the singer. Yeah, yeah and, and it's not just Marley. The fact that she's with a Rastafarian um, you know, is what it explodes. And, and um, it's weird talking to people who weren't in Jamaica in the 70s and they don't realize just how far Rastafarian had to go. They were probably still the most brutalized and victimized um, social group we've ever had. Um, I used to, so I live on, uh, when in Jamaica, I live on Lady Musgrave Road, which is a very posh street. And there are times when I'm coming home and I'm thinking, man, only 10 years ago, I'd have been beaten nearly to death because I'm walking into a posh uptown house with these dreads. So it's, um, but yeah, there is some of that mirroring going on. Um, you know, almost, not necessarily like in a Don DeLillo way when he has what I call coincidence as opposed to coincidence. But, they, 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 in, in some ways, they, they, it, it, what Nina and, and John John and Alex have in common is that they're... Alex is the Rolling Stone journalist. Yeah, is that they're kids who have disappointed their parents. And they're kids who, in their own way, fail at defining themselves. And that, that doesn't need nationality. That's, that's all over. Mm-hmm. You have written about... Um, a lot about how you felt when you were growing up, mm-hmm. that you felt that you were, a, you were a nerd and you were a kid who got picked on. Mm-hmm. And you've said that, you, that it was only cowardice that stopped you from committing suicide when mm-hmm. you were at school. So mm-hmm. is this partly your own experience that's gone into this? Um, not with, not with, um, not with John, not with, not with John, John, John K. In a weird way, more like Weeper. Not that I had a stint in prison, despite what the bio might say. <laughs> um, but that you find, you find, I think you find your own sort of prisons. I, I, I went to a very uptown church, a very rich posh church in Jamaica, and that was one way. Um, you just, you know, you'll, you'll go to an uptown church and the Lord will provide you a wife. And it's, it's amazing, for example, the sort of gay and lesbian underground that happens in a Kingston church. And were you aware yeah. of it when you were in the church? Well, yeah. You? Um, and, as a and, I, and I wasn't even part of it. No, I wasn't. Oh God, I was nowhere near church as a teenager. <laughs> so this was, is when you were adults. Yeah, I was an adult. Okay. Um, now as a teenager, I just lost. I just lost. Lose. Um, lost. Lose. I'm an English teacher. I don't know the word. I got lost in in music. That's what I I spent all my time doing. Just live, just write. You know, creating art and and making music. And that was all I did. Um, and afterwards, when that wasn't enough, then church and so on. Um, but no, I, I, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting. Um, uh, another newspaper who shall remain, remain nameless, 
um, actually called Jamaica because they wanted to find out if I was ever brutalized and attacked in Jamaica by, I guess, some roaming gay Gestapo, anti-gay Gestapo. And that didn't happen. That um, most of my, I think with, with, with Jamaica, I just reached this sort of end of myself. And, and I didn't know there was nothing left to do. I mean, I was in, even career-wise, I mean, this is it. Um, you know, sexuality was something I didn't even think about, really. It was like, no, it's, 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 I would never allowed myself to think about it. This book would never have been written in Jamaica if I was writing it. Certainly not then. It would never have happened. Um, and I think I, it, it's, it's, my leaving Jamaica is a very, very personal reason. I don't think it's, I, 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 you know, I don't think it's a sort of a hard and fast rule that this is why I left like most Jamaicans. It was very, very, I mean, a huge reason, reason why I left Jamaica is that I just couldn't find a damn job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 um, it's, again, it's sort of, it's sort of, um, complicated, but I also know without a doubt from beginning from say part three of this novel could never have happened had I stayed there. I wouldn't, I because of the gay there. stuff in it. Because of the gay stuff in it. And, it's, and the thing is, I, I would, again, I would have been protected by class. So it's not like anything is going to happen to me. I don't think it needs to. It's like, um, it's like violence. Um, nothing has ever happened to my mother. But she does, you know, violence doesn't have to happen for you to fear it. And it's, it's, the, it's sort of the uncertainty, and I got tired of that. Um, and, and also, on a very, very, you know, in a very, very artistic, for very, very artistic reasons, I just wanted to be around a community of writers. And by then, all the writers had left. So, and I think writers need community, and we were desperately wanted that. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons why I left. This is called A Brief History of Seven Killings, and mm. it's a fat book with many more than seven <laughs> killings in it. You know, honestly, the brief, the brief history part came as an inside joke, because I always was amazed at the concise Oxford Dictionary, <laughs> or these two big door stoppers. It's like, this is not, con- this is not a concise English <laughs> dictionary, so I thought, um, you know, I'm going to call it A Brief History. <laughs> it's, it's, someone asked me if it's based on A Brief History of Time, and I'm like, no. Um, and there is, in the book, Alex Pierce ends up writing an article called A Brief History of Seven Killings. And, and his reasons are as ridiculous as mine. You know, he just didn't want to write about more than seven people. So even though there are more than seven people involved in the story. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I can't even remember how the title came about now. Mm-hmm. But there's like 76 characters in your, in, in, where yeah. you list the characters. That's not speaking characters, but that's characters. Mm-hmm. That you, you, so you have to have a list of the names and where they are in the book. Is that because, mm-hmm. you, because your publisher thought that it would be a bit confusing for people? No, I thought about it, although they, they certainly agreed. I, I can't remember now. Um, I know I, 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 I was always thinking. I don't think I had it when I sent the draft out to them. I don't think that the first time I actually, I don't think I had it in there because I remember it was after it was at editors that I actually came up with that list. And then I had to go back. Actually, no, that's not true. I didn't come up with the list. My American editor came up with the list. He went through and just listed everybody, and I checked if I if I wanted them listed in it. Um, and that was, you know, it reminded me of, of Wolf Hall, where she had a cast at the front, and everybody said, "God, thank you for that." <laughs> so helpful. Um, but yeah, I, I it, because I knew 
I knew if it's going to be a, a novel that's so huge with so many characters, some appear, some are recurring, some appear once, um, some vanish midway. Um, I knew that um, I needed I needed that sort of order order to it. How did you map them when you were actually writing it? I actually have a I have a plot list. I have a chart uh, that was in usually really old, really worn out moleskin notebooks. And it was a chart. It had um, rows, characters, one, two, three, four, five characters, and time of day, depending on, on, on the time. Because usually I plot, but I plot in, in, in sort of minutiae. I don't plot the overall arc, but I will plot, what do I want to write today? And even though I'm writing, I usually choose one character per day. But even if I'm only writing one character, if I'm writing Josie Wales, I still need to know what Nina is doing that day, even though I'm only writing Wales. Especially for those scenes where characters intersect, even if they don't meet. So Nina is waiting out by the bus stop. Bam Bam is waiting a few blocks down, staring at the same house. Josie Wills drives by and sees a woman waiting late and think, really? This is a place a prostitute is going to hang out? Um, and so in different uh, chapters, you get the different yeah. perspectives, although Which, they don't actually interconnect no, no, right, directly. Right, no, and for that, I needed to know the architecture of the novel at all times. Uh, so that yeah, that became a, basically a, a chart of where everybody is, and it also stopped me from playing favorites because I would have easily you know characters like people you stick to the people you like you don't want to hang around the people you don't like. So who would you have stuck around? Probably gay hitman. Mm. Come on, he has guns. Gay weeper. He has guns. Weeper, no, no actually, not weeper. no weeper didn't didn't come real to me till the point he appears in the book to, um, narrating. Um, Josie Wales, but people keep end up being dead. Yeah, it's a bit so of a problem. There's a lot of Josie's blood thing. being Josie Wales's friend. And I just like Nina because she has this great worldview, and yet for somebody so smart, she always makes these horrible choices, like a lot of people. Um, and uh, it's yeah, it's you know that's one of the things that I, as a writer I'm interested in. You know, we 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 say things we don't mean, and even when we say things we mean, the other person don't get it anyway. And we know we shouldn't do X, but we do it anyway. We're the only animal that does that. We know full well why we shouldn't do this, but we do it. And, and I wanted that sort of very, very human flaws and so in them. Um, Josie Wales, you know, Josie Wales does make one mistake and that's his downfall. Uh, and, and, and I'm very, I've always been interested in that, in those ways in which characters or people mess up their own lives. And I wanted it to not appear like the author is just spinning gears, that the author is, is um, being too much of a god in the machine with the plot. Which is why, which is why I, I, I only plotted so far, because I, I, I didn't want to be in charge of the architecture of the novel. Not the architecture, the arc of the novel. I didn't want to be in charge of that. I so it's an the, architecture, but not an arc. It's not an arc. I wanted the characters to be in charge of their own arcs. And, and, and part of that is almost imagining that I'm just a, either a spy or a journalist or a fly on the wall and just let them do what they want to do, including this is why you, you end up with scenes like, um, I think it's Dorcas Palmer talking about, you know, talking about Heather Locklear's hair in Dynasty versus her hair in T.J. Hooker. Uh, stuff like that, because people, yeah, stuff that people talk about. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, uh, let's, let's talk a bit about the way that you do violence. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I was very struck, particularly by Bam Bam. Now, Bam Bam is this, for those who haven't read it, is this, is this sort of young street kid who sort of we see from an early age and mm-hmm. he gets caught up in it. 
And then you just, you just sort of extinguish him. Mm. And I felt incredibly upset by that. that, that mm. he, just sort of, <laughs> he doesn't sort of have a heroic death scene or anything. He just mm. sort, of, sort of, it becomes more and more um, uh, sort of fractured, his mm-hmm. consciousness, and then mm-hmm. it stops. And that's the end of Bam Bam. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because Bam Bam, funny enough, Bam Bam is a character that's haunted me for years. And, and I think in, he may have even existed in different forms in other stories before. The, 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 the gunman, the, 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 the violent person, the, the, the um, drug don or whatever, the, the, the henchman who has this big redeeming factor um, we, we know about. In fact, um, Tristan Phillips, who ends up telling a huge part of the third section, is that person who uh, ended up in drugs, in gangs, in prison, but is hugely articulate and up to the point of poetic, is talented, and we, we wonder why he ended up there and, and a what if with him. But Bam Bam is none of that. Bam Bam is somebody who's almost shaped by all malevolence. And there are lots of Bam Bams in Jamaica. Um, one of the reasons why the drug passes were so notorious is that they had no problem killing anybody. They really couldn't care less. They will, they will, they will, they will, you know, an, you know, they will annihilate an entire f- dance floor. They didn't care. And I really want to know what, how you get to that point. It's too easy to say, well, it's just a sociopath. And I don't necessarily buy that. I'm not even that sure sociopaths exist. But the the but then why? How how do you get to a place where you have a person who has an empathy for no one, and to the point where? I mean, granted, he's also doing cocaine this with PCP, but, but yeah, how you get to that point? And um, I think you, uh, to him, I don't necessarily believe in such a thing as pure evil. I actually don't believe in it at all. But I think he comes the closest to evil being a, a, a sort of a, a pathology. Well, how, do, how does that happen? Well, witnessing both your parents getting killed is a big part. Um, but also, the, the thing about that scene to me that, that shows is his, his, the fall of his humanity. He's not even watching his parents die. He's reducing his parents to, let me grab the one thing here that I can use for myself. It's a pair of Clarks. And, and Jamaicans know their love for Clarks. <laughs> they should really give us royalties. Every single Jamaican. Even I had Clarks. Uh, 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 yeah, so he, he grabs his Clarks and that's what he runs with. It's not even his class, it's his dad's class. They can't even fit him. Uh, and he, that to me was when he lost his humanity, when he's this, the only thing I can take here is the shoes. Um, and, and how do you go from that point where then you kill people? Um, his initiation, you know, in, in, not to give away too much of the book, but um, you know, he does kill a guy for his brief. The, the initiation is kill this guy, he can have his clothes. Including underwear, and, and 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 it's funny. I remember my dad talking about the first time he got underwear. It was a big moment. He was like, "I got my first brief at eight. I was like, "All right, daddy." <laughs> so the idea that 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 somebody could look at underwear as this super privileged thing—it's not even clean. It's like <laughs> the the you know the idea that that is there's a line in the book. I think Bam Bam says it. People support, they can't afford to feel shame. So the idea that 
that, yeah, he will kill somebody to get their clothes, and particularly underwear. But how do we, how do we get to that point without falling into a sort of tedious origin narrative? Because I just don't like those. But that's why he became important to me. Somebody who is who... I don't think Bam Bam has any moment of redemption in the book. I've, I can't remember putting one in. And, and how do you do that without turning him into a caricature? Mm. Without turning him into a, a flat... Well, flat characters are fine. Uh, but how, how to not turn him into a sort of a cartoon idea of violence? And that was a challenge with him. Because usually the stock way of doing it is give one moment of something redemptive. Let him grab a daisy or something. <laughs> uh, let him recite some poetry or, or something like that. And no, this, this, I, I wasn't interested in that at all. And, and part of it is that you the, that it's so the voice the, the the experiences are so contained within the voice mm-hmm. that that there isn't an objective reality. So so you don't have the cliches of killing that mm-hmm. one has in in a, in a lot of fiction. No, I, and it's it's he's more he's more surprised at how a gunshot sounds. I remember the first time I actually heard a gunshot. And contrary to what La Republica thinks, it wasn't when I was struggling in the ghetto and coming out through the power of my pen. <laughs> it was so amazing. That's how the, that, that, how the, that was how the interview began. As someone who escaped the ghetto through the power of the pen. <laughs> like, I was like, you know, the first time I heard a gunshot was a Martin Madonna play. <laughs> um, but yeah, but him realizing things like that, again... Uh, Bam Bam's world is almost all sensory. Even though he re- does, he, funny enough, he's a person who lets us in on early Marley. Um, it's through him we know Marley had to go to Delaware all the time, and Marley tried every type of song, including a Beatles cover, because another a mar- musician had a hit with And I Love Her. And, and, and he's the one who's breaking down Marley up to 1976, because Marley showed the, an, an, an alternative to what he could have been. All of them, Marley, Bam Bam, even um, Tristan Phillips, who shows up later, they all come from the same type of slum, the same, the same backgrounds, the same horrors. How did he make it? Well, when he had talent, but Tristan has talent too. Um, Tristan Phillips is a musician too. How did he make it? I, wanted to, I really wanted to get into that. Um, you know, certainly not to excuse it, but I did want to sort of explain it. But you don't actually ever call Marley Marley. No. So, so he, he exists one stage removed from the historical figure. Mm-hmm. You, is that what, why you did that? You just call him the singer? Yeah, that's why I call him the singer, because I also like the idea of him being sort of um, almost like his own allegory, that he's this emblematic figure as opposed to a person. I also didn't want to write another, I, I didn't want Marley to become a, a physical character in the book, although, I mean, his physical presence is all over it. One, because I actually was more interested in the Marley I knew. And the Marley I knew is a superstar. It's somebody who is tabloid father, is the person who dropped $50,000 on a bottle of wine because the princess of Somalia felt she wanted some wine. Uh, it's the, even Marley's death was a series of news reports. Marley's assassination attempt was a series of news reports. It was on the news, you know, Bob Marley has been shot. And, and, and so on. It's, it's, it was all virtual. It's, it's songs that I heard um, the, cool, the, the cooler, younger adults play. Um, you wouldn't have heard it on the radio because Jamaican radio wouldn't have played Marley. Well, not until he died. Um, the, the, but they, so his presence was all through media. 
to me. And I was more interested in, in keeping that. The Marley, the Marley, the Marley was always experienced. I mean, very few people have actually met him and, and shook his hand. But Camilla has, by the way, the Duchess of, is it Duchess of Cornwall? The Duchess of Cornwall. The Duchess of yeah. Cornwall. Um, that's what she told me. Back in the day when, when, when all those ra- those sort of posh people were going to yeah, Jamaica, playboy people. At the booker, she told me she and her son is reading my book. I'm like, but how's the Jamaican patter? Are you handling that? <laughs> She's like, oh, please, I knew Bob Marley. All right. You just went a few degrees up in coolness for me. But yeah. Yeah, um, of course, now I've totally forgotten the question again. I forgot my question again. What was my question? Does anybody want? Damn Duchess of Cornwall. Sorry, damn Duchess of Cornwall. Um, we've talked a bit about you being. An, I mean, you've got other lives apart from being a novelist, and mm-hmm. one of them is being an activist. And yeah. you, there was a very interesting um, p- Facebook post you made mm-hmm. this week, which was in response to a, a writer on a, on a, an internet um, site called Tin House Magazine. Does anybody know? It? A writer called Claire Bay Watkins, who was who wrote a piece about called "On Pandering," and it was about she was talking about um, basically about a um, sort of sexual abuse, although not. So, so, yeah, she was by talking a about professor. Yeah, that, and she was also talking about how she um, when when a novelist when a, when a male novelist um, was visiting campus, she offered his, her couch, but he kept trying to get in bed with her. And didn't succeed. And then, because he's this sort of emo novel, emo novelist, he wrote in very explicit detail the whole night. And he just dismissed her as Claire the student. But then Claire was already Claire's already a, a writer and a published writer. And the idea that all the men in the piece were Richard such and such novelist of blah blah blah. It was Claire the student who wouldn't sleep with me. And how she got reduced by that, and how so much of her life has been pandering to a male, white male gaze, white male critics, and so on. So you, what you do, which mm. just seems to be absolutely typical of you, is you twist that through 180 degrees. So mm-hmm. you say, what I'm thinking so far, that while she recognises how much she was pandering to the white man, we writers of colour spend way too much of our lives pandering to the white woman. Mm-hmm. Explain. Because I think, they, and, and, and it's funny, because I think a lot of white women pander to that archetype of the white woman. The sort of long-suffering, um, astringent prose set in suburbia. Um, you know, older mother of wife sits down and thinks about her horrible life. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and it's funny because there was an older white woman writer who was enraged by what I wrote. Even though I wasn't talking about any woman. I was talking about this sort of archetype that, that is in the fiction, that, 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 that's in the criticism. And that, and a lot of the, funny enough, uh, it's, it's, last time I checked, there were like, um, a 180 women who said, yes, this is true. Including, you know, at least of those 100 writers of color. Uh, my friend Mary said, yes, I was rejected because there was like, could you, could you make your half Japanese, um, pro- protagonist more white? Uh, and they, and they were all giving stories that the, the, you know, you might not get into the New Yorker if you're gonna if your story is gonna be about you know something that doesn't fit this very narrow idea of the white female experience. And I said, but one of the biggest one one of the people it's funny because one uh, one of the a writer who joined the enraged writer is Ayelet Wallman, and I spoke to her afterwards. I'm like, but of anybody in the world, you 
would uh, you have suffered from this because you refuse to write that type of fiction that even younger and not sometimes not younger um fem- white female writers if they're writing about queer issues whatever they also don't get published because it's not this sort of very suburban sort of astringent really really well crafted kind of story and um and a lot of the, the female writers of color said amen is this because it's the marketplace and it's it's female it's white females who who are the biggest readers of white fiction. females who are the biggest readers and and and, and not just white female editors but white male editors who also who also will only accept a certain kind of story everybody knows what the new yorker story looks like yeah it's it's um it's, it's, yeah, and 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 almost every, every I won't say every. I can't say every. I don't know every writer of color in the world. I know the writers of color who I'm Facebook friends with, who talk about that. That um, it's this. There's this one. It's, it's it's not that it's the only way to get published, but they knew they would have gotten published a lot sooner, and I knew that as well. I knew there was a certain kind of prose that could have written, um, things like. The, the intense scenes hinted instead of explored and, and so on. That, um, but the, the, the sense we got, and I got a sense once because of an award when you know, a book won, and then they said, will the judges stand up? And the judges look exactly like the winner and, and so on. And, and I think that, um, again, I was just riffing the way Claire was riffing. Um, um, I'm not drawing wild conclusions, but it's something that I noticed, and that's one of the things I said, because I think I said at the end of that post, anyway, still reading. Yeah. Um, but I was, so it was, you know, I wasn't necessarily forming a full position, but I'm saying this is, the, yeah, I have noticed it, uh, you know, um, Marie Matsui Maki, a Japanese writer, has noticed it. Roxanne Gay, a black American um, Haitian writer, has noticed it. We've no, we, we notice it, and, we, and, and sometimes we have to stop ourselves and go, no, this is a story we want, and this is how I want to tell it. And, 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 you know, publication be damned. Do you think that was why you had your famous 78 rejections for your first novel? <laughs> Probably. Um, but I also think, I wrote a, I wrote a uh, you probably came across it, it was a blog I can't even remember. I didn't even know my blog was still up. Thank God I took off some stuff off it. Because um, I may have trashed some people who I'm now friends with. Uh, but I wrote a blog once called When You're Not White Enough to Write a Black Novel. Um, that there, there is a, this, thank God we no longer use this term. I hope we don't. This term, cultural ventriloquism. What a horrible phrase. Because implying that a person of culture is a dummy. It's, it's, but this idea, when it hit me that as if I had said, and I was really going to do it, I said it in the article, I had my friend Gerard, he's Australian. I said, Gerard, I want you to be me for two years. Because everybody's going to be so blown away that this Australian guy got deep into Jamaican country <laughs> and could report with such authority, his keen air. And you'll see these words we've seen in literary criticism a lot. The keenly observed portrait <laughs> of the dark side of Jamaican life. His, 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 his experiment in cultural ventriloquism is a roaring success. I was like, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. We didn't do it. But, <laughs> but yeah, because there is this idea of the other um, that is really, that, that is, is really it's palatable. It's, it's something that is a kind of, it's, everybody knows it's a literary, it's a literary goldmine. 
and it still is, uh, the, the, um, the sort of white adventurer in black hell kind of story. Which is what Alex is, in a way, in your he novel. Is. <laughs> he is exactly that. Even though he's trying really hard to not be it, he is. He is that way. And he, 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 he's very self-conscious of it. A lot of people aren't. It's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's still a narrative... It's still a narrative that's happening. It's still, um, uh, it's still the, this sort of, of this kind of I expected so much more tone in it. Like what Bing Gavano and Anna talks about his essay, How to Write About Africa. Um, that, yeah, that, that, that is still a, a voice that makes a lot of money. And that's a voice that will never go away because it makes a lot of money. And I honestly thought, I toyed with it, toyed with it for a while because I was, I was convinced, and I'm still convinced, that even though I, that as dark as the novel, dark as a novel as I wrote, I think it would have, it would have done a lot better at the time if it, was, if, it was done through, if it was done through that sort of cultural um, ventriloquist voice. But I also think some of the, reject, the, the, the publishers who rejected just said the Caribbean isn't in. I'm not sure what that means since Edwidge Danticat was an Oprah choice. Um, and, uh, you know, I think others, the, the, we also, I think we, I don't know when this happened, but we feel we must have redemption in a novel. There must be some sort of redemptive thing. And I don't write redemption. Spoiler alert. Um, it's, it's that, uh, you know, I remember reading um, Off Mice and Men, and, you know, it's like it starts so sad it ends up desolate. <laughs> you should still read it, though. <laughs> that there is, a, there is an arc um, to it. That, um, but I think because that was also not there, where, where um, we don't have a scene where well-meaning and emotionally-blooded white dude um, decides to have a drink with the jokey black dude, and they just watch the sunset. And, uh, and it's another day in Jamaica. It's, I wasn't going to do that. And, and I think that, that's why a, a lot of people pass it. But also, a lot of the fault was mine as well. Sometimes it just went to the wrong agent. It, you know, sometimes it just went to people who just don't want to hear that voice. So I can't necessarily take too much of the, the horrible industry wouldn't want to hear my voice. Some of it was me not doing my homework. Yeah, so there's, you know... Both. Bit of both. Yeah. You, there's a, a brilliant um, dialogue in the magazine tomorrow that Marlon had with Jeanette Winterson. Oh, it's coming out tomorrow. It's coming out tomorrow, 8 o'clock oh tomorrow, God. online and in, the, and in the magazine. And you say some really interesting things there. And one mm -hmm. of the things you say, and I wonder how relevant this is, and mm -hmm. you're also a teacher, mm -hmm. is you said you find that particularly with young writers and readers, they don't want complicated feelings. Mm -hmm. And you, you give very complicated feelings, mm -hmm. don't you? Is that what, partly what it's about, this, this marketplace? It's about... Yeah, I think who don't want complicated feelings. I think yeah, I think and and it's not just in fiction, in nonfiction as well. Um, I think that we. I don't think we want we we want something too messy, and even if it gets complicated, we want it to straighten itself out um, soon or quickly. Uh, it's I don't know if it's a sort of a a, a Hollywood view of story, because we know Tom Cruise is the star, so it's got to work itself out. Um, and I don't think we want, we want, comp yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think, it's interesting to me, for example, um, watching the whole phenomenon of Fifty Shades of Grey. And the amazing thing about those books are how safe they are. 
Like if they were really going to go into sexual transgression and will we come out of this unscathed, it would have been a totally different book and would have sold two copies. <laughs> it's, 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 it's not story of all. Um, uh, it's, it's because again, we don't want complication. We don't want complication. We don't want, we don't want, what if it ever, what if we, we, we at some point have to deal with that, that, um, you know, a Rolls Royce, your own private jet and whatever still doesn't change it from being a sexual predator. And, uh, it's, 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 Again, nobody wants to accept that. And I, I'm a big believer. I believe people should have their fantasies. Why not? Um, uh, it's, it's, you know, read what you want. Get off on what you want to get off. But we don't want that messy part, which is weird because our lives are so messy. Maybe that's why we don't want mess in fiction as well. But it wasn't always like that. It's, um, it, I think one of the things about fiction that, was, that is great is this sort of vicarious experience of things we may not want to experience in real life. And sometimes that's not necessarily bad things. Some people don't want to experience racial equality in real life. Some people don't want to have to, have, have to, to um, take sexual violence seriously. Some people don't want to have the reality that people of color have an inner life. And the novel, for a huge part, allowed that. I mean, we can say all these terrible things. We can say what we want about Uncle Tom's Cabin now. There are lots of things we can throw at it. But that was the first exercise in empathy a lot of America had ever experienced with people who were not them. It was the first time they ever experienced empathy on a page. So, and you can't take that away from the book. Uh, but I don't know. I, 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 I keep threatening to write an article where I was going to do the history, the history of when did we stop wanting to be challenged by fiction or by narrative. When exactly did that? We start to look at fiction as a place to escape complication. I'm not sure when that happened. I still blame it on Peyton Place, but I'm not, I'm not sure. I've got about three commissions that are building up on this, on this page. I'm going to have to commission you to write all these pieces later. But anyway, I'm now going to put it over to the audience because I've been talking far too long. Um, we've got a hand over there immediately and one over there. So we have the gentleman on the left and then the gentleman on the right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's really about 100 questions I'd like to ask you about your novel, but I'll restrict myself to one, and that's about the character of Josie Wales. Mm-hmm. And of all of your leading characters, he is the only one on a basic human level, I don't get. I don't mm-hmm. fully understand his motivations right. or where he's coming from. And I can see that structurally he's really important mm-hmm. because his life is the whole arc. Yeah. I guess I got mm-hmm. And, you know, he breaks with the sort of paternalistic Don Dada style mm-hmm. of Papalo. He breaks with the politicians because he can see before anybody else that mm-hmm. they need him more than he needs them. And as you said earlier, he sees the drugs special mm-hmm. drug scene coming up and jumps on that. But this might sound a stupid statement, but why does he do it? He's monogamous, mm-hmm. he's domesticated, mm-hmm. he's quite happy living in Tivoli Gardens with an inside toilet. Mm-hmm. He's capable of enormous gratuitous violence. He doesn't seem to enjoy it particularly. Mm-hmm. But above all, like all of your characters, because it's in the first person, he mm-hmm. ruminates, he reflects, he ruminates and reflects. Mm-hmm. He doesn't ruminate about himself. Mm-mm. He ruminates about other people and he's very, very perceptive and acute. It's yeah. like a little matter about how Eddie Sayaga makes love to his wife. Mm-hmm. So why he's, does he do he, it? <laughs> what, um, my take on it is yeah. I, I've got a little link with something that Nina said, which I mm-hmm. think is actually one of the most profound things in the novel. 
she talks about why her father never moved out of Havendale mm-hmm. and further out into the suburbs. He could have done, but he was quite content mm-hmm. because he'd paid off a mortgage. And what she says is he didn't understand that you can't be halfway. You can mm-hmm. never stop moving. You've always got to go on and on. Mm-hmm. And I think in a way you're talking about the hollowing out of the middle classes, aren't you? Yeah. About 30 years before that phrase became commonplace. Mm. Can I, can I wonder- just stop you there? I'm yeah. a bit worried about getting other people's Right, it's just yeah. one other point I wanted to make. Yeah, I mean, so I think... Ju- ju- can I just start, ask, ask a very quick question? There's yes. actually a foundation dancehall DJ called Josie Wells. I know. Did you, did you tell him you were going to give his name to this psychopath? Well, I mean, it's not his name. It's Clint Eastwood. It's, it's, it's whoever, came, whoever wrote the script for the outlaw, Josie Wales. That said, he, that's the only way he's addressed. I know somebody who paid him a check in his original name, and he actually refused to, t- to take the check. <laughs> um, but Josie Wales, also is, Josie Wales also watches the world that he doesn't have and, and wants it. But not in this sort of hungry, I need it all thing, because that's beneath him. But why, why, why shouldn't he have the world of Peter Nasser? He's as smart as he is. He is as, you know, he is, um, he's on paper, he's as, he, he can speak Spanish. He's pretty talented and he, he knows all these things. Why not? But I wanted somebody who was also amoral. I actually didn't want somebody who could be easily explained. Uh, yeah. Sounds like you've, you've mm-hmm. pulled it off. <laughs> Hello, Marlon. It's a great book, great novel. Uh, I'm going to ask a very simple question. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the way, I lived in Minneapolis for five years. <laughs> a simple question. Why did you write this novel? Why did I write this novel? That's a good question because I'm still figuring that out. <laughs> Especially since of how it started. I think, I think the, the, the why came up almost near, probably in the middle of writing it. I just wanted to figure out 1976. I wanted to figure out the 70s. Uh, uh, my coming of age would have been the 80s, not the 70s. Yeah. But the 70s, you know, my parents were starting out. They were young adults. They represented the dream of independence. And, we, and the, the, I, the feeling by 1976 is not that it was gone, but it was seriously derailed. And I got, became very curious about that. Why? Why did we enter the, the? Why did we end up going into the Cold War? Why was there so much violence? But also, why did why did culture why did um culture from the street explode internationally in the mid seventies? Why why did that when they when why not the sixties? So it was almost I think I think writers do write to solve mysteries, yeah. and and I think that's one that that me me was just figuring out what the hell happened in the seventies. Um. Could you just talk a bit about um, Arthur George Jennings, the dobby? Mm-hmm. And the ghost. I, the ghost. Yeah. Um, I can start with a very, very interesting thing that happened to me a few weeks ago. So this guy came up to my reading and said, I just want you to know Arthur Jennings is my granduncle. <laughs> I was like, that is pretty impossible. Then he told me his surname. I go, yeah, yeah, it's your granduncle. It's... And then he said, and by the way, all of us in the family still think he was pushed. So Arthur Jennings is based on a, and no, I'm not going to reveal him. Arthur Jennings is based on a character, uh, based on a, a Jamaican politician who a lot of Jamaicans thought was, the best way to describe it is that in terms of hopes and dreams, he was like our Kennedy. And uh, Arthur represents a certain kind of Jamaica denied, or a certain type of Jamaica that was killed in the 60s that most Jamaicans wouldn't have known was killed. 
because the 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 um the the and he came out mostly out of again listening to my mother and the the sort of regret she said when she talked about this guy and the sense that a kind of hope left with him um whatever that might mean i don't necessarily think you can pin hopes on one guy but the, and again it's one of those things i never forgot and uh, he, on a very technical level, he's also a kind of a Greek chorus from the novel because he says a lot and he has a lot of perspective, but nobody listens to he's him. He's the only he's person dead. who has a sort of overall perspective. He has one person with overall perspective, but nobody listens to him. He's dead. <laughs> um, but I, I, I really wanted to... The novel is set in the 1960s, but it really kind of opens in the 50s, in the 70s, but it really, it's, it's, it's going everywhere from the early 50s to the, late, to, to the, you know, the end of the 90s. Actually, um, you know, the, 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 the Afghani rock band that I talk about um, near the end of the book, that's from 2000 and, I think 2012. So it, that's how he sort of, that's how the book goes, but that's just the kind of role he plays, a kind of Cassandra person. Thank you. Lady Hitler, Yeah, my question is um, not so much about your book, but about you. Mm-hmm. Um, how has your life changed since you won the Booker? I follow your Facebook pages, uh-huh. and I remember the night that the, when it was announced that you'd won, and I was sleeping, and I just woke up, and I heard, mm-hmm. and I sort of jumped out screaming <laughs> and started writing on my Facebook page, they've got one of us, have one of us. <laughs> So I just mm-hmm. wondered what it was like for you. Um, wow, I don't know. It was it's for what it's it's. I mean, it's only been like a a month, so I don't know how profoundly my life has changed yet. It's nice seeing my book on the bestseller list, so that's nice. Um, I I don't know. It's it's. I'm still. I think for at least the first five six months, you're probably still processing it. Um, you know, if I, I see that trophy, I think somebody's coming to pick it up. Because you know, I also really didn't think I was going to win. So it's, um, it's just been really, really shocking and overwhelming and, 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 and also pretty cool. Um, uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's, I'm certainly glad it happened. Uh, you know, my, my former boss has this saying, um, of all my mother's children, I love me best. So, <laughs> so yeah, you know, it's... it's um, it's been really, really, uh, you know, it's been really sort of thrilling, but also kind of eye-opening in a way. Um, just see how people respond, whether positive or negative or in between. And, and just the, the hearing the different conversations and hearing different people who ordinarily probably wouldn't have read a novel like this and how they process it, that's something that was new. Because usually, you know, usually um, I would say the type of people who read my novels, I know who they are. I know the type of the person who would read them. Um, and this is opening a whole new audience. Including the Duchess of Cornwall. Including the Duchess of Cornwall. So it's really interesting seeing how they process reading and how they process. But only to an extent. I think there you can pay a little too much to, to media. Um, at a certain point, I cut off reviews. Even when people send me reviews, I'll just like file them or delete them. Because after a while, I think, positive or negative, I think they can warp the perception of a writer. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm still, I also am still figuring it out. I'm still, it's, I'm still reeling from it. Yeah. So gentleman at the back and then the lady in the front. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Uh, hi, thanks Marlon. Um, first of all, as a gay Jamaican, many of us had the same reaction when you won, that you were one of us, so big up for that. Um, but what I'm really interested in, you mentioned um, that you're a big fan of crime fiction. Yeah. So I'm quite interested in who your influences are, because I'm reading the book at the moment, mm -hmm. and it really reminds me of James Elroy's Underworld trilogy. The scope, the characters. Funny you should say that. That's exactly what I was influenced by. I mean, I love it because yeah. that's where it kind of takes me, the CIA thing. So I just wonder yeah. what the crime... Um, American tabloid of all the books was sort of my go-to Bible for this book for quite a few reasons. One, the language. The idea of, of, of language, vernacular being the thing that drives a novel. Although with Elroy, the vernacular is Elroy. It's let me tell you this because I'm the coolest person allowed to tell you this, which is what's great about Elroy. <clears throat> the other thing about Elroy I got from, that I got from Elroy is Elroy is talking about the capital B big issues, but he always uses marginal characters to tell it. So we're dealing with the Cold War, we're dealing with Castro, we're dealing with the Kennedy assassination, with a whole cast of people we have never heard of. And the idea that, that the telling the story, telling the, the, the history that we think we know through the marginal people who you don't, it's something I shamelessly ripped off from him. Uh, because the, the, the characters in my novel, even the people who they're based, based on, a lot of these characters are composites, they're not going to appear in any history books. And it's not to say necessarily that these are the people who really shape things. And, and Elroy is very careful not to do that either. Some of these guys are just the losers who get swept up and, and, and end up on the wrong side. Um, but yeah, those are certainly two of the things. I also like, actually, I really love how he deals with violence, actually. And, and, and also the, the sort of, I, I wouldn't say I was trying to write a crime novel, but I wanted that atmosphere of dread. And I wanted that atmosphere of, not atmosphere, the sense that this is a result of people doing things to people. Um, so yeah, he's a huge, he's a huge influence, and he continues to be a huge influence, but I had pages of, of American tabloid marked out. It's, it's, um, yeah, that was, that, was the, that was the Bible for this book. Yeah. Obviously, it isn't your first novel, mm -hmm. but it's probably safe to say it's your most acclaimed now. Mm -hmm. But do you think it's the best thing that you've written? I do think it's the best thing I've written, um, largely because I, I do not, I, don't, I just don't send my editor books that I don't think are better than the one before. Um, the novel that came after, for example, Night Woman is the second novel. Book of Night Woman is the second novel that I, is the second novel that I published, but it was the third novel I wrote. Because there's one in between, which my publisher at the back will never ever see. Because it's terrible. Uh, and I, I just, and even if it's not terrible, I just, it's not, it doesn't interest me. To, to, to stick with a book where I don't think I'm writing better than before, then people can just read the old novel. Um, so yeah, I do think it is. Hopefully the next one I write, well, I, it won't come out unless I think it's better. Um, and, it's, 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 and it can be, like I think one of the things that, why I think this may be a better novel, and I, you know, I'm hesitant to say better because that would mean you won't buy it, the, the second one, and buy it, people. <laughs> But in a sense that this is, like this novel for me is the most ease I've had with a book, which is weird because it was very hard to write and it took four years to do it. But one of the things that I let go of is that my idea of what a novel should be, 
that's the thing. I find that novels, that novels sometimes teach me, and um, A.S. Bayard said this, that sometimes the novel she's writing now teaches her how to write the next one. And I didn't realize it until it happened with me that one of the things that I think I'd have done with a previous novel is be looser with it. It would have been a different novel, and I don't think it would have been a better novel. But like with this one, I was, um, yeah, I had to let go of all of that. So there's a scene in it where, in my head, I knew it had to be a form of blank verse. And if it were 2005, there's no way I would have done it. Um, there's a, not a chapter that I knew had to be a seven-page or a nine-page sentence. Um, it just had to happen that way, and I would never have done that. I've done that before. So I think they're better, but not necessarily for reasons that make them better. But maybe, maybe I'll, say, I'll try to write something different, and not necessarily different in terms of subject matter, but sometimes different in terms of how I, as a writer, approach, approach the work. The Book of Night Women is, is a lot of people really love the book of Night mm-hmm. Women, don't they? I mean, I've heard a lot of people saying, oh, you should definitely read that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you should definitely yeah, give a lot up of people on think the book of Night Women is, Yeah, a lot of people <laughs> think that's my best book. I'm like, I'm just glad I've written enough books now that people can pick their best, <laughs> which is <laughs> not necessarily mine. I'm like, no, it's all good. <laughs> Do we have one more? We've got time for one more. One more yeah, at, the, at the back there. Yeah, one Perfect. of you two. Yeah, yeah. Actually, are we allowed to go over? How past? Five minutes. Okay. Oh, we're already over. Or we're yeah. allowed to go over. We're allowed to go yeah. a bit over. Yes. Good evening, Marlon. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to ask: um, Do you feel safe about going to Jamaica? That's a very good question. <laughs> um, um, in one way, in, in a lot of ways, yes. Um, I was. I think I was very careful to make sure everybody I've written about is dead. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I don't know, because it's, it's I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly going there in May for, for Calabash. But I don't know, I, I, I get the sense from a lot of Jamaicans that we're, we're tired of being held prisoner to the, to the, to the, to the past. And uh, we're t- are tired of these discussions that we have on the veranda, but we won't have in, in government or we won't have in public discourse. Um, so, you know, I, 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 that's a sense, you know, that's a sense I get. I think I'd probably still kind of watch my back. Um, you know, thank God I have good friends in security, but, but I think, um, yeah, I, I, I knew, I, you know, I knew sort of the stakes when I was writing it and I wrote it anyway. So it's, it's, um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens in May. <laughs> one, yeah. one more. Hi. This Hi. isn't meant to be an offensive question by any means. Um, just mm-hmm. want to say that up front. When I delivered a paper on Michelle Cliff at UA in Jamaica about mm-hmm. 10 years ago, the first thing someone said to me was that the only reason why Michelle Cliff is read, even published, mm-hmm. is because you folks abroad, thinking I wasn't Jamaican, you folks abroad only know Jamaica as violent sex and depraved sex. Mm-hmm. One of the first things, uh, is it Michael Wood, who was the, um, the fellow who presented the argument right. for why you won, said... Talked about was violence and sex. In, in mm-hmm. When you're a writer, how do you deal with that problem? If you want to mm-hmm. discuss or write about something that is mm-hmm. concerning violence and sex, yeah. but the marketplace mm-hmm. fixes you in this peculiar way. Tony mm-hmm. Morrison, for example, who gets um, uh, overread as, well, black people are violent and sexual, the books mm-hmm. are violent and sexual. They, they're right. sex. 
How do you deal with that as a writer, or do you? Maybe you don't I do. Know. I do deal with it, and there's an added complication of even even though I I I I mock it and I reject it, there's still that inbuilt thing in me as well. Am I degrading Jamaica? So there's that added pressure as well. I I don't know. I think. It, the one thing I didn't want to do and I thought about it is I think sometimes we think the way to address that is to not talk about them at all. Because I, for one, uh, like, it's, it's weird me saying I'm sick and tired of the only stories being guns in the ghetto or bad sugar fields in the country. And I just, and here's, here am I writing about guns in the ghetto. Because I don't think the answer is to ignore the story. I think the answer is to complicate it. I don't have a problem with anybody writing about anything. If, if you know, I think... But is it treated with complexity and deep, deep, deep ambivalence? And I think that's what we don't get. What we don't get is complexity. Um, they, to, 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 to write a novel, I could easily write a novel. I could have written a novel, any kind of novel. I could have easily wrote, write a novel that paint a picture of Jamaica that didn't exist. Or that's not true. Or paint, you know, if you live in Jamaica, in Jamaica, you know there are 15 different Jamaicas. I could have picked Jamaica number 13 and number 6. Um, you know, I have friends in Jamaica who never saw, never saw, have, have yet to see Crossroads. I can't, I can't, you know, I can't condemn them. I knew all of Miami before I knew Montego Bay. So, it, but, but to come back to the violence thing, I realized, and I had to come to terms and accept this, that it's not the violence itself that's the problem. It's not the sex itself that's the problem. It's how you treat it. You don't want it to turn into a sort of, let's act as if it didn't happen. I used to call that space break sex. You know, Harry came into the room, space break. The next morning they woke up. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't want that. But I didn't want to descend into a pornography either. So it was a very careful thing and a lot of drafting and redrafting. But, but it's, as I say, you, you, the, the thing is, when somebody says to me, I really, really hated Josie Wales, but when he died, I missed him. So, well, yeah, that's what I'm here for. That's what a novelist is here for. And I think that's what you should know. I don't think anybody should shy away from... So, because uh, sometimes I want to... So, so what if somebody wants to write a novel about child abuse set in Jamaica? How do we treat it? You have to treat it with complexity. It's, it's not a situation where you don't do it because you don't want to paint a poor picture of, of whatever. It's, it's no, bring... Bring humanity to the story. Bring ambivalence to the story. One of the things that I like about Tony Marsh is that sometimes she complicates it in a way that you don't want. Uh, uh, it's, it's like reading Sula. It's like she will complicate, you know, complicate things like Sula cutting off her fingertip. Um, so in ways that you don't, that's not the complication you want. We, you know, but she does it. And I think ultimately that what, that's what makes make you make your stories more real and felt as opposed to being cliche or being a sort of tedious a tedious sort of whitewash but you have but that doesn't mean i don't get flack for it anyway <laughs> i i i just was torn a new one by a prominent jamaican intellectual he called the novel an atrocity and i was like my work here is done <laughs> <laughs> and i think on that note we're going to have to stop Thank you very much for coming along. And Marlon, that was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for having me. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.